Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Gore Vidal, who died in 2012 at the age of 86, was known for many things. A novelist, an essayist, political pundit, screenwriter, playwright, actor, and historian. I first had a chance to interview him in 1990 when he came to Berkeley to participate in a Pacifica Foundation event. That interview can be found at kpfa.org as a Radio Walensky podcast. The second interview on March 11, 1998, occurred while Gore Vidal was publicizing his latest novel at the time, a comic science fiction fantasy novel with political overtones titled The Smithsonian Institution. Joined by my then co-host, Richard A. Lupoff, we talked about the book, which had ideas presaging films like Night at the Museum, as well as ideas about alternative realities, and of course, the politics of the time. With side trips to his recent memoir, Palimpsests, and his work on stage and film, this interview has not been heard since it originally aired. Well, the Smithsonian Institution, of course, in Washington, D.C., given us at the bequest of a very rich Englishman called James Smithson, who never set foot in the United States, but thought that he loved republics and thought we were a democracy and we should also have culture. So he left an awful lot of money to make the Smithsonian Institution. My Smithsonian is out of time, out of space. It's sort of a parallel universe. And in it, time is very different. I start in 1939, and the Second World War has just begun in Europe and will soon take us in. And I have a 13-year-old hero who is, as you've been remarking before we went on air, exquisitely portrayed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Resembles someone we know. (laughs) Practically in the buff, uh, in front of the Smithsonian, holding in his arms an old lady of 21 with whom he is having an affair at the age of 13. We can, I am told, be arrested in Orange County for this, but I have no intention of setting foot in Schmidt's land for some while, so I think I'm safe from the, uh, uh, from the vigilantes. But in the Smithsonian, these exhibits come alive at night. Boys of genius going to St. Albans in nuclear physics, born one. They need him for the atomic bomb. Einstein is one of the characters, Oppenheimer. But meanwhile, within the Smithsonian, exhibits come alive at night, and you go by the early American exhibit, and suddenly uh, the Native Americans who are plaster by day uh, with dioramas painted behind them suddenly are living again. And in the hall of the First Ladies, which as a child I used to hate being dragged through there. I didn't want to see a lot of ladies' dresses. But they have all the First Ladies lined up, and they come alive too at night, as do their husbands, the presidents. So in that sense, it's a bit like my uh, 
my more uh, realistic historical novels, the boy meets one, doesn't know who she is at first, but she turns out to be this beautiful 21-year-old who is Mrs. Grover Cleveland, who married President Cleveland at the age of 21. And they have an affair. Meanwhile, he is working on time, space, because he wants to stop the Second World War. So that's one of his projects in the course of this of this romp. <laughs> this uh, this thirteen year old boy who's referred to by the letter T attended uh, Saint Albans School. Also, believe uh, attended Los Alamos High School at one time, and uh, Gore Vidal attended the same two institutions. Yes, but you see. I'm not a mathematical genius. I was broken by long division very early. <laughs> so I don't qualify as the genius that this kid is, but we are the same age, same school. He has a doppelganger self that I write about in Palimpsest, boy I grew up with, and we both, I went in the Marines, he went in the Marines, I went in the Army. Each of us was 17 in the Second World War. He was killed at 19. And in Palimpsest, which is, of course, a realistic memoir, I have to follow the facts. Now I have him again in the course of the Smithsonian Institution, and he saves him. It's a very complicated plot. He is there, and uh, he ends up at Iwo Jima and somehow gets him out of it. That means the T doesn't stand for time, if some have suggested, but rather Trimble? It stands for both, really, depending on which angle. You see, I am such a scientist these days. Heisenberg's law is the law of my life, or rather Heisenberg's principle. T is Trimble, or T is time, depending on where you're standing. Nothing works quite right. He does keep America out of the Second World War, and he does keep uh, the Germans from getting Hitler. But he cannot control, nor does he suspect what's going to be happening coming from the Japanese. In other words, he's not ready for Pearl Harbor, so he ends up with a war anyway, which puts one of the T's at risk. So he has his work cut out for him, but oh, many odd things happen. He stops Woodrow Wilson from becoming president. Yes. He finds a Monica in Woodrow Wilson's life, as there indeed was one, and uh, he and Frankie, which is the private name of Mrs. Grover Cleveland, they go back to 1910 and blackmail Wilson and keep him from running for governor of New Jersey, which had he not done that, two years later he would never have been elected president. So there's a bit of nifty blackmail as well as some very nice time travel, uh, which has to do not so much with getting into some sort of machine as with the notion of parallel universes that there is a universe precisely like ours and you can step into it and you can alter it, and it won't have a Woodrow Wilson, then all that flows from that, no First World War, history is totally different. And he uh, screws up a great many things by doing that, but at least there is no Hitler. This raises the question regarding Gore Vidal's writing of this book. Do you see this as just satire, or are you doing something else? Well, I'm doing a lot of things, I suppose. I don't examine too carefully what it is I do. I work a lot on instinct. I suppose, in a way, in the matter of the boy killed at Iwo Jima, having killed him in one book, I now exercise the privilege of art of Shakespeare himself, who said, I shall make thee immortal with a line. 
Well, that was megalomania on Shakespeare's part and probably on mine, but I'm now bringing him back to life again, giving him a second chance, which he didn't have first time around. So in that sense, that was a form of completion which was highly gratifying to do. Meanwhile, it is very satiric indeed about the American empire and the dead presidents hold uh, periodic convocations and uh, they call before their sort of assemblage Franklin Delano Roosevelt to ask him why the Japanese attacked us. And Roosevelt tries to pretend it was all unprovoked. Well, of course, we did a lot of provocation. And there are two sides to that story, which uh, I think might be entertaining to the public now to read. The convocation of the presidents I found fascinating, where where we can see these historic figures in actual confrontation. But as I read that section and then did a little research into the earlier works of Gore Vidal, I came across an evening with Richard Nixon oh, yeah. in which somewhat similar confrontations take place. Yes, indeed it did. I thought it was a play on Broadway which um, came out in 1972 just as the New York Times was about to support Richard M. Nixon. And, of course, uh, we got a bad review in the New York Times as they don't give good reviews to people whose positions they dislike. And that killed the play, which was very funny, with George Irving as Richard Nixon. And the device was everything Nixon said in the play He'd actually said in real life, I did a lot of research on it, and it's sort of his life story. And then I have on a platform George Washington, Eisenhower, and Kennedy, three dead presidents. And they act as a chorus. They spend most of the time quarreling with each other. They can't stand Nixon, really, any of them. <laughs> they have a lot of unpleasant things to say about each other. So it's a kind of a squabble going on. And I guess I borrowed from myself slightly for the uh, convocation when they face Franklin Roosevelt and try and find out what he is doing. And is he aware that he has created an empire out of a republic and can the republic survive being an empire? Answer is no, of course. Grover Cleveland plays a role in this book. I found that interesting because he is pretty much on the side through your historical books. I think they go around him but don't actually hit on him. He comes across, relatively speaking, in a positive light as one of the good guy presidents, and we don't hear much about him now. No, we don't, and it's a pity because he was really the last important Democratic president until Franklin Roosevelt, and he served two terms, but they weren't continuous. He was defeated after his first term by Harrison, then he came back four years later to face a terrible depression, which sort of erased him from history, but he was a working man's president. He was a people's president. Hated the railroads, which were the great source of corruption as insurance companies and aerospace and weaponry are now. And he was one of the good guys of history. He also married very late in life. He was one year as president, and then he marries his 21-year-old daughter, a friend of his who was killed in, a, in an accident. I suppose he's best remembered for something that people now talk about, thanks to Clinton and play Misty for me again, as I think of Monica. When he confronted with the fact that he had an illegitimate child when he was first uh, running for president, and the press was so excited by this. It's the first time it ever happened in presidential politics. And they came to him and they asked him, and he said, well, 
what shall we print? He said, well, tell the truth. Awful thing for a president to say <laughs> and uh, rather horrifying for journalists, I should think, who weren't quite used to the truth either. So they did, and there was a campaign song. Pa, ma, ma, where's my pa? Gone to, to the, the White, White House. House. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, I, I grew up on that. I had an uncle who, for some reason, was a great fan of Grover Cleveland's, and, and he used to walk around the house reciting that. I'm talking about yeah, well, circa was, 1940. Well, he was a, obviously a good Democrat, and this was the last of the big Democratic presidents until FDR. I'd like to get back to Smithsonian Institution a little bit later, but I'd like to ask you some other questions. You mentioned before Monica Lewinsky, of course, uh, which I'm sure that on this tour you've done some talking about. You've spoken in the past that we don't have two parties. We have one. Democrat and Republican is really the same party with two wings, maybe even just – No, we have one party with two right wings. Two right one wings. One called Democratic, one is called Republican. The lesser right wing, if you mm -hmm. want to call it that. The Democrats has a president now who, from where I sit, seems to be what – the press would call directly in the middle. Yet there are people who hate him and despise him and will do anything to bring him down. Why? Well, Hillary was quite correct when she said there is a right-wing conspiracy against them. There are a great many conspiracies against them. But um, the principal one and the one that describes the hatred which has been artificially built up against them was the um, national health care which they came up with very early in the first term. We are the only civilized country that does not have a national health care service, a single payer, and that being the government, paid for out of tax money. Uh, we don't have it because the people who own the country, the 1% that has 90% of the wealth, who in turn own the media, own the congresses, pay for the elections, pay for the one party with the two right wings, they would rather die than lose the piggy bank of their corporations, which interlocked form a government. The piggy bank are the insurance companies. It is a cash cow for them. Today, one-third of everything that anybody spends on medical care, one-third of what is spent goes to the insurance companies for nothing, uh, paperwork. The Clintons had challenged the piggy bank of the ruling establishment, the corporate dictatorship, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it. This was intolerable to them. And they struck back, and the Clintons, they threw the Clintons off base. Clintons had not realized their power and their fury. And I talked to Mrs. Clinton about six months after the collapse of all this, and I said, why didn't you single out the insurance companies, everybody hates them, as the enemy, and, and spot them, and, and you take the lead against them, put them on the defensive. Instead, you all went on the defensive. She said, well, we thought we could do it in a fair way so the insurance companies would be all right and this and that, you know, adjusting. And I said, well, you can't. They are not about to give that up. And I said, they'll, they'll never forgive you. I mean, you gave them at least six months in which to have a conspiracy. What is the conspiracy? Putting a half billion dollars worth of television, Harry and Louise ads mm -hmm. on television. That is a conspiracy. You have to make the ads. You have to buy the time. You have to put them on. If that isn't a conspiracy, I don't know what is. It's visible. 
So they did that, and here we were, you know. Um, Harry, does this mean that we can't use Dr. Haskins, who delivered <laughs> Buster Brown? I'm afraid not, <laughs> Louise. But Harry, that's communism. Well, this went out and out and out and out. Meanwhile, strange voices in the American spectator were heard in the land that uh, sexual degeneracy was going on. Uh, that Mrs. Clinton was really Lady Macbeth and was committing murders right and left. This was a smear job, which in turn was a conspiracy, which came from those corporations, not only going to teach the Clintons election, uh, a lesson they expected to defeat them, they didn't, but they managed to so destroy them, to so smear their reputations, and it's not that they care about them. I don't even think they have any personal feeling. They don't want to harm the Clintons. The Clintons are irrelevant, which they have now discovered. They were sending a message to the prisoners out there in the great republic, as we laughingly call ourselves, which are the citizens. Don't you dare ever vote for anybody who is going to change the political system that will ever return to the people anything for their tax dollars, which must go largely for defense and for our profits. They had done the undoable in their eyes. And I said, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm still waiting for the charge of necrophilia against the president. <laughs> There'll be grainy pictures of him coming out of a mortuary grinning. <laughs> there is nothing they won't do to this hapless couple. It strikes me so strange because politically, he doesn't sit on the left. He's not planning to reform anything. I mean, NAFTA showed that. No, but he stopped. You see, they did come out for something that every country has and we don't have in the first world. The people don't even know they don't have it. They know that the health care is expensive and a mess. They don't know how well this works. I've been reading the American press for half a century. I have never read a story favorable to another society. You hear about Sweden, they have better education for everybody, better health care for everybody, daycare centers for working mothers, but they practice free love, uh, are alcoholics and commit suicide. Right. The suicide rate is the highest in the world. Yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it's Seattle. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's climate, by the way, suicide. It's usually on a Monday morning on a bright day. Really? after a lot of clouds that people decide they can't face it any longer. We are totally brainwashed. People have no information about other countries. Trying to explain how the national health thing got more and more complicated. It's terribly simple. You can do it in three sentences. And by the time the Congress, which is paid for by the corporations, got through with it, it was inexplicable. Meanwhile, we were hearing these obscenities about the Clintons which causes a lot of hatred out there among simple folk who believe what they read in the papers and see on the network news and talk radio. Gorvidal, don't you feel, though, I, you and I are, are both older than this fellow Walensky over there, so yes. we remember things that, that he can only read about. When I was a youngster, I remember Harry Truman going through the same script, just with a different cast. Well, Harry Truman uh, did nothing for the people at large. He created the national security state. He wanted a national health plan. Well, he certainly didn't push it very hard. I've been writing about uh, Truman lately, and I regard him as a, one of the great villains 
uh, because of the invention of the national uh, security state, CIA, loyalty oaths. He started all of this, you know, the communists under every bed uh, to frighten the people into spending all the money on defense after the war was over and we were on top of the world. We were paying in the 50s the highest taxes in American history. The first year I made any money was 1954, and I was writing for television quite a lot, and I made $100,000. And I just thought, my God, you know, how on earth does anybody spend that much money? Well, as it turned out, I didn't get a chance because <laughs> I was taxed 91%. I was allowed an agent's commission on what I had made. <laughs> the same thing happened to somebody in my bracket called Ronald Reagan. He was an actor on General Electric, and uh, he turned to the far right to abolish all taxes, at least for the rich and on corporations, and I, went, uh, I turned towards socialism. That if we were going to be taxed at that rate, let's get something back, like a health service and public education and so on. So I wouldn't say that Truman was a terribly good example of anything pro bono publico. He was a totally empire man. You would find probably a similar tax on a first couple on Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. Because the one running motif through our history during the lifetime of us old gaffers and this young man, the young Richard over here, <laughs> the uh, eternal motif is hatred of blacks. I mean, this just gets more and more virulent. We've put practically all of them in prison now. The, the hatred still goes on. And he who hates them the most subtly will be elected. Now, that's one of the things against Clinton. He really doesn't hate them. I mean, it's not just an act. He was brought up in that kind of world, and uh, he is at ease with... Uh, gentlemen and ladies of color, whereas the others are not. So you have, on the one hand, a race war, which exacerbates the nerves of the rulers, and you have a president who, not, not since Roosevelt, has proposed something. First political debate I remember was when I was 10 years old, 1935, was Social Security, which I'm afraid my grandfather in the Senate wouldn't vote on. Huey Long voted for it. And the two of them introduced it in the Senate as a real, real vaudeville act, Senator Gore and Senator Long. I mean, they were great comics. And uh, they introduced it, but the Republicans were fighting Social Security, saying, you lose your name. You will only have a number. And uh, so they were terrified of uh, losing their names and being just a number. So these battles go on, and the first time anything comparable was in 92 and 3 when the Clintons came up. After that, he has done nothing. He's what we call a custodial president. He's there to throw out the first baseball, and that's about it. Gore Vidal, it doesn't give us much hope if the only even minor chance at making inroads comes up a cropper and turns a potential activist into a do-nothing. What hope have we? Well, we have to understand how we're governed. I think information should be passed along to the people, which is what I'm trying to do right now. This is why I bother to write and to speak and to get around. This is not a great joy for me in my time of life to uh, be out there explaining things, but I have a sense of urgency. I don't have that much more time in which to do it, and I certainly would like to see a lot of other people doing it. 
But again, if you to be brutally realistic, suppose you had a charismatic leader who might take over a third party or come to power within the Democratic Party, and he gave a great speech on how really to have a health care, how how the United States should get how the people should get back money uh, from the state in the form of health care. How are you going to pay for it? You're going to tax corporate profits. Corporations pay practically no tax at all now. Thirty years ago, most of the government's revenues came from individual taxpayers, income tax. And about the same percentage, about 45%, came from taxes on, on corporations' profits. Corporate profit taxes now provide the government with about 12% of revenue. They don't pay tax anymore. Now, if you raise them to 45%, you can reduce the taxes on the middle class. I've just said something you'll never hear a member of Congress say, nor if you asked him that question and put to him the very words that I have just given you, he will say something like the Pelagian heresy will never take root in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Your generation of writers, quite extraordinary, Norman Mailer, Truman Capote, Joseph Heller, Irwin Shaw, Tennessee Williams. Do you think it was just because of the war that all of you grew up in a sense so quickly and so well as writers? Or was there something else in the upbringing through the 20s, through the 30s, into the 40s? Well, it was a different world. I think we had a better educational system than now. It seems to me that by the 50s, thank, thank you, Harry Truman, that uh, public education for one thing, and private too, got terrified of communism. So every, so many people were blacklisted who were good teachers. That happened, and then you got you were taught patriotism, and you were taught uh, nothing of any consequence. We who were brought up in the twenties and the thirties and the forties uh, still had a pretty solid educational system. And I remember the Vietnam War, you know, and. I'd be going around speaking against the war. I was co-chairman with Dr. Spock of the People's Party. and the Kids would ask me, you enlisted in the army? I said, well, yeah. How could you do that? I said, well, the country had been attacked. Oh, they're pretty vague about what happened. And I said, uh, that's what you do. You fight for your country. Well, I wouldn't fight for this country. They'd say, well, I said, no, I don't think you should. It's a bad war. It hasn't been declared by Congress. It's illegal, unconstitutional. Go to Canada. But don't uh, get upset at the fact that those of us who fought in the Second War, we believed in the country. It was still a serious place. We've lived long enough to watch it being totally taken over by great wealth. And we've watched one by one the uh, Bill of Rights being uh, erased as we speak. Uh, Kenneth Starr has certainly... Uh, uh, done, done major work, not only on the First Amendment, but on due process. Anybody can be held now for apparently any length of time and tortured too. And uh, we have watched all this happen, and it all started with Harry Truman in 1950 creating the National Security State. I came up from L.A. this morning. I had to show my passport in my own country to get on the plane. This is to avoid terrorism. Well, any terrorist in his right mind can blow up any airplane. <laughs> this is the harassment of the people, which is very, very important to a government to keep the people 
always under the thumb. That's why drugs were so wonderful for them and are so wonderful. They can lock up anybody and uh, three strikes and you're out and hold you for life. We have so many laws now that there is going to be a rebellion at some point. I think this, this society will be overthrown. I don't see how it will be done because they have all the guns over there, but um, I suspect if we're lucky that the economic collapse will be so great that then uh, our corporate masters will have to retreat for a while and we might have representative government again. That's being optimistic. You've actually kind of anticipated my next question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway because I'd like you to address the subject further. In our lifetimes, we have seen great eras come and go. The Second World War was obviously, a, it shook the planet, followed by the Cold War. Now that the Cold War has been over for almost a decade, are we moving into an era that has any particular shape or meaning, or is there just global chaos in, in, in the cards? Well, it seems fairly chaotic, but of course we don't know how, what, how it's going to fall out eventually. What we have is a decadent empire, a world empire that we still have. NATO is our control over Europe and uh, particularly over our allies, not so much our ex-enemies. And Japan and the Asian powers are our other hemisphere uh, empire. So we are, <laughs> I, I loved, I wish Clinton said we are the one indispensable nation. I, I said on television, did he say indispensable or indisposable? You can't get rid of the damn thing. <laughs> Everybody hates us, and uh, that's why I had to show my passport at the airport in my own country uh, because uh, we have behaved so badly towards so many people, overthrowing governments, killing their leaders, that they all hate us. But the average American doesn't know why. He thinks the terrorists don't like us because we're such wonderful people. And they're just jealous and they're, they're mean. Well, we have done so many horrible things and are doing them to this day. So what is the shape of the future? I would think first the United States has got to get off the scene. We don't have uh, the money. The $5 trillion debt will mount. Uh, eventually we'll have to give up our nuclear pretensions and try and restore our own country, <coughs> the famous infrastructure. I see that as happening. I see us uh, as a more modest power, a middling-sized power like Argentina or Brazil, which means we'll at least have a good soccer team probably. <laughs> we might even develop a civilization, which would be great fun, though it's hard to imagine an American civilization aside from you know Walt Disney. I think the world is probably moving toward the elimination of nation-states and more and more, if, if the people's will is followed and you don't get a lot of dictatorships, I, I see the breakup of nation states into smaller units. The Basques of France and Spain will have their own little country. The, the Scots will go away from England. Uh, Italy is due to crack up into at least four parts, a sort of Swiss cantonal system. The U.S. would be better off in smaller units. Let the whole southwest and uh, even over to Miami, a whole section that will be Hispanic and Roman Catholic. Why not? And Asian up in the northwest and consensually mixed in uh, certain other regions with a kind of loose federal government. 
and let everybody have his own kind of country and his own do his own thing. If you could time travel the way T does in the Smithsonian Institution, would you do so? And if so, to what time, to what era would you travel in order to try and get us off the wrong track? Well, I'd, tra <laughs> I'd travel ahead. I mean, I, there's, there's nothing in the past that uh, is ever really of any use to you. I mean, if there were, you'd re you could read a book and figure out that uh, there have been model societies that we might want to imitate. There was no perfect period. Every period has had its troubles. I was asked that question the other night. And they said, what, what period in history would you most like to have lived in? I said, no period before anesthetic. I said, <laughs> it'd be a lot of fun chatting with Socrates and Heraclitus and so on in Athens, but at the first toothache, I'm in Century City, Los Angeles at the dentist. You wrote a palimpsest, uh, a memoir which takes you up to... Uh, 39. 39. Uh, are you working on um, the sequel yet? No, I wrote it. It's called Smithsonian Institution. It's just a little more off the wall. Uh, are, are, we, are we going to see uh, another no. volume of autobiography? I think I have done it. I've got quite a good biographer called Fred Kaplan, who's a professor at uh, City College. He's in his 50s, and he's done three first-rate literary biographies. He's done Dickens, Carlyle, and Henry James. And he was working on Mark Twain, and he stopped it. He wanted to do a living writer. And he got interested in me, and he's been on it about three years, because he felt that he has not a, a literary idea, thank God. Most of these people are just gossip writers. and He has an idea. He said he thinks that the lines, the two great lines in American literature are Henry James and Mark Twain. And he thinks these two cross in me. He also sees that due to the accident of my date of birth, uh, the movies and literature also crossed during my life, that I arrived with a talking picture. You know, I'm a sort of confluence for him. I said, I, said, I hope you won't call the book Entropy. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you mentioned film and the confluence. Uh, you have been doing some acting lately. Um, in Bob Roberts, where you played a senator, I understand you wrote your own lines for that? Well, we improvise quite a lot. That's the joy of working with Tim Robbins, you know. I said, uh, what do you want me to do with this scene? And he said, anything. I said, do I have to use the word? No, 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 no. You're making a speech, you know, so you go into character and you make what you think that your character would say. Some of the others I've done lately, like Gattaca, have been more schematic, I have to follow the, the dialogue, which I have glued on other people's foreheads. I have it written all <laughs> over the set. I can't learn anything anymore. I saw Gattaca, I think, two or three nights ago, and uh, it was interesting watching you. I had no idea you were in the film, and there you were suddenly. <laughs> and I, was, I was largely cut out, too. I, my last three scenes were cut, so we never know about the murder that I committed in it at all. I mean, the plot, the, what they do is if they realize that they have a, a problems with a film that's a bit slow, they cut the old ugly guys, Alan Arkin and me, and they keep all the pretty ones, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman and so on. 
but us old guys, we are the plot. So, you, so suddenly you just have a lot of pretty people and there's no plot left because we've been cut out. Well, I, I recall the last scene you're in, you're just sitting there looking up. We found the killer and you kind of look like, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I'd had three scenes before that in which I was being found by Alan Arkin. Oh, God, he's a funny man. We had a great, great time on that. Now, in, in earlier years, you spent a good a good deal of time on the other side of not the camera but the scriptwriter's uh, typewriter. Uh, I, I recall one early work of yours in particular which had numerous incarnations, Visit to a Small Planet, also a science fiction type work. Mm, yeah, and also time-related because uh, the main character is returning to what is the past for his galaxy of the earth, but he's he's off by a hundred. He wants to come back to enjoy the Civil War because he says war is the only thing you people do well down here and you're <laughs> my hobby. I just love you, you know. But he misses, you know, he hits the age of Eisenhower. And it was a great success as a comedy on Broadway and touring and I sold it to Paramount for David Niven. The next thing I knew, Jerry Lewis had bought it secretly. Yes. I never saw the film. I'm told it was. You were fortunate. It, it was. It was dreadful. I believe there was also a, a teleplay production of it. Well, no, that was. It began as a play on television on Philco Goodyear Playhouse with Cyril Richard. I, I remember seeing that, and I thought that was quite splendid. Oh no, that that really worked, and uh, the actual visit to a small planet would have made a good movie. But we had Jerry Lewis, and that was the end of that. And, uh, oh, my luck in the movies. My, God. <laughs> my, disaster, my failures are more famous than most people's successes. Myra Breckenridge? Indeed. It's on every list of the ten worst films. I've never seen that one. Caligula? I mean, that has a special niche in the all-time bad movies. <laughs> There's a Playboy film, right? Yeah, it's a Playboy film without without enough play. No, I've I've been dogged by really uh, extraordinarily bad luck. What about The Best Man? That was all my doing, and uh, I like that one, obviously, since it was my play and my movie. And I sort of like Suddenly Last Summer, which had, had some great arias in it. That was a collaboration by yourself and Tennessee Williams, was it not? Tennessee didn't write one line of the script. Oh, he didn't? No. That was Sam had... Spiegel wanted his name oh, on it. Oh, I see. Tennessee was so greedy because Sam had convinced him he's going to get the Academy Award. We both would for the screenplay. And I knew that it was Tennessee was kind of a day. He said, we'll go. After all, it's my play. And I said, I know. You get beautifully uh, credited, too, for the fact it starts with it one-act play of yours, but 60 minutes of it is mine. And uh, But I said, if you if you want it, well, then, of course, it had the worst reviews on earth. I mean, if you enjoy homosexuality, decadence, cannibalism, incest, you'll love this picture. Well, that was all <laughs> the audience needed. It was a huge hit, thanks to <laughs> Bosley Crowther's bad review in the New York Times. Uh, one of the reference books I was uh, looking at just earlier today, in fact, mentions that you you won an award from the Mystery Writers of America for a drama in 1954, but this book does not give any further specifics, and my curiosity is piqued. Well, it was a short story by William Faulkner called Barn Burning, and uh, it was done on suspense, live half-hour drama, 
with E.G. Marshall and Pat Ingle. And it was beautiful work. Bob Mulligan directed it. And we also did Smoke, another Faulkner story. And Faulkner comes from near where the Gores do in Mississippi. In fact, uh, we suspect that Gavin Stevens, one of his running characters, is based on a Gore. And I used to see him every now and then in New York, and he said, well, I, I do not have the television, but some of my relatives have the television, and they said they thought it was very, very good. He said, you're not going to go out to Hollywood, are you? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to make it. <laughs> oh, dear, he said, uh, uh, Fitzgerald, you know, did that. I said, yes, I know, but so did you. Yeah, but I came home. <laughs> <laughs> so I came home, too. In uh, Palimpsests, you spend a great deal of time talking about your grandfather, Thomas Pryor Gore, Senator Gore. Do you think that your politics were shaped by his intelligence. I don't want to say his politics because they were certainly not the same. Uh, what do you think shaped you to pull away from the ruling class and forge your own path? Well, I suppose what I got from it was that you did what you thought was right, particularly in very important matters like life and death. He was one of, I think, 11 senators to oppose the First World War and he got a telegram from the Oklahoma City Oklahoma City um, Chamber of Commerce saying that if he didn't vote for a declaration of war, they would defeat him in the next election. He sent them a telegram and said, um, how many of your members are of draft age? Well, they defeated him at the next election. His cousin, Senator Albert Gore Sr., father to the current figure, uh, had the same kind of gore intransigence. He lost his seat in the Senate, and he was very he was dreaming of the presidency, as was my grandfather, by opposing, he was the only member of the Senate, really, to oppose strenuously uh, the Vietnam War, something that his son would never take a stand like that, but it would cost him a vote. His son always votes for uh, defense. And uh, I suppose I inherited that sort of intransigence on matters of principle, populism. My grandfather was no friend to the banks. Uh, he had a lot of the faults of the populace. They, they, they tended to racism and religious isms. They really hated Catholicism. But they were pretty good on matters that had to do with labor, to do with farmers, and control of federal government to keep it from being so intrusive in our lives. So I picked up a lot of that from him, and uh, in the long run, it is better to do what you think is right than to just trim your sails and end up just, just another important nobody. Do you think that there is any way someone could go into politics and not be fully corrupted by the system and be successful? No, you'd have to change uh, the election laws and uh, how you raise money. You can't do anything until we go back to Philadelphia and get a new constitution. All the liberals say, oh, no, 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 they will take away the Bill of Rights. Well, they're taking it away. Anyway, why not face it? Have it out. Thomas Jefferson said we should reform the constitution every 30 years. You cannot uh, allow a man to wear a boy's jacket. Well, I would change the whole thing. I would make elections something like eight weeks. I would cut the cost of them by 
by forcing the networks and local cable and so on to give free time. They put, you know, it's a license of print money, and they make so money, much money out of presidential elections and statewide ones in places like California. That would cut the corruption by a great deal. It would give you a wider range of candidates. Nobody can make ads. Nobody can do sound bites. You get uh, a candidate absolutely naked sitting there before a couple of hard questioners, and he's got to answer, grill. he's got to be grilled. Then you find out what's in his head. Now, that strikes me as uh, a means of getting decent government. But no burglar ever kicked aside the ladder that got him to the second story, which means no Congress that got there under the present system is ever going to give it up. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you had been doing a lot of writing about Harry Truman lately, and you, you delivered yourself of some fairly strong opinions about him. Is there a Truman book in the works? No, no. There's a, I did a long piece in Vanity Fair on the American Empire. Last November, a huge piece, and of course he's, as, as the creator of it, of the national security state, he's the central figure. And we're getting all sorts of fascinating archives are coming out of Russia, out of Germany. <laughs> the CIA is busy shredding our, our records, but we, we do get some. And we now begin to get a pretty good idea how the Cold War was almost entirely our invention, that we broke every agreement with Stalin that we had made at Yalta and even again at Potsdam, uh, reparations. Uh, the division of Germany was entirely our doing. Stalin wanted a united Germany under the four powers, Britain, France, United States, and the Soviet. We didn't want that because we now had the atom bomb between Yalta and Potsdam. We got it. We didn't need Stalin. We could blow him up. So we methodically broke every agreement with him. Then we started to rearm the Germans. He got scared and uh, grabbed Czechoslovakia, grabbed the border states that he felt he needed to protect himself and made the, uh, the East German Republic a dismal place as self-protection. We just shrugged our shoulders, locked him in his icy cage, and threw the key away. This is contrary to everything that is taught. He's sure. a demon who wanted to conquer the earth like Hitler. You know, that nonsense was put out by Harry Truman. We've come out of the 40-year Cold War, which so shaped the national mentality and world events that it's as if a world had ended and we are living in a whole new universe since 1989 or 91, wherever you want to draw that line. And we understand nothing about the other people in the world because we don't know their history. And we wonder why terrorists keep blowing us up every now and then or creating mischief. It would be nice for the people to know what their history was, but they've made it so dull in the public schools particularly that no, no kid wants to read an American history book. I'm doing a study of what is taught in the schools in the way of history for the New Yorker. So I'm wading my way through a lot of history textbooks. Pretty grim it is. Gore Vidal, you've written several uh, collections of essays, and uh, I have uh, United States here, which is the latest omnibus of most of them up till 92. Do you have uh, enough for another collection? Yes, I've actually brought another collection out in England. I've got even more to add to it, so I think in a year or two I will publish another one. What uh, do you see as your next fictional work? 
Do you have anything in mind at this point? Well, I am committed to Random House to doing one more in my narratives of empires. I like to think of Burr, Lincoln, and so forth. And it would be logical to bring it up to date, but it would be so sad. And I don't want to end my career with a downer. And uh, one of the reasons of the Smithsonian, if that is to be the end of my career, it's, at least it's a, it's a joyous book, very upbeat. I, of course, it has to be fantastic to be upbeat, but so it is. Uh, I don't know if I could face the end of the Kennedys and uh, the Reagan years and the United States becoming an object of contempt around the world for just our general ignorance and clumsiness in dealing with international affairs, not to mention the horror that they have of our executions and our and our rabid police and uh, our prisons. They don't regard us as a civilized nation. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.